Lord, we all need to be fed from your word. And we want to have a growing hunger for your word because we know it's through your word that we come to know you. And we know that to know you is to experience eternal life. And to know you is to be in sync with you and your will. So we're trusting you for this today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of First Peter. We continue our consideration of the book of First Peter. Today we're in First Peter chapter 2. And we're going to finish, God willing, the second chapter today. We will begin with verse 18 and read through the end of the chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18 from the New American Standard Bible. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Of all the traits of God, which one would you say is most important? There's no way that we could take time to consider all the various traits of God, His attributes as they are called. But which one would you say is most important? To you, of course, but... To everyone. Some might say love is most important. The Bible says in the book of 1 John, God is love. Others might say holiness is important. In the Bible of book of Isaiah, chapter 6 in the Bible, the Word of God says that God is holy, holy, holy. This is the only time that any attribute of God is mentioned three times in succession. And according to Hebrew thought... Hebrew language did not have what we would call the comparative and superlative degrees. They could not say good, better, best. Holy, holy, holy means holiest. Some might say holiness is the greatest attribute of God, the most important characteristic of God. But I'm going to suggest to you today that the greatest characteristic of God, His attribute, which is the umbrella under which all other of His attributes fall, is the attribute of His sovereignty. God is sovereign. What does that mean? God is in control of all things. His sovereignty requires that He be all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. That He be 
totally, absolutely free to do whatever he wants to do. Because, for instance, with regard to love, if God tries to love us and somehow there is the possibility of his love being blocked in some way, then he is not sovereign, is he? But his sovereign permits him to express all other of his attributes. We have a hard time with the idea of the sovereignty of God as Americans in particular. Mankind has always had a hard time with it. But in America, we have a big time problem with it. One of the mottos of the American Revolution was, we have no sovereign here. Well, they were talking about a human being as sovereign. But that probably spilled over into the thinking of generation after generation of Americans. Why? Because we want to be free, right? Freedom is what we want. But we fail to realize that the only way we can truly be free is to be men and women who are under the controlling influence of God Himself. Jesus says, if you abide in My Word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What was He saying when He said, if you abide in My Word? He was talking about obeying Him. If we obey Him, Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, then we're free. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. We want to be autonomous. A German, Friedrich Nietzsche, some of you have read Nietzsche. He is in a long line of philosophers who have trumpeted the necessity, the absolute necessity of man being autonomous, being his own sovereign. The figure that he speaks of in his writings, the Ubermensch, translated roughly that would mean Superman, is the man who is ultimately sovereign, the woman who is ultimately sovereign over his or her life. This is a problem for us. But we think about what the Word of God says as it relates to His sovereignty. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name be glory, because of Your loving kindness and because of Your truth. How can the nations say, where now is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. He is sovereign. Their gods are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot even make a sound with their throat. And those who worship them and make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. Think about that. Do you want to be that kind of person? Or do you want to be a person who is realizing your full potential in Christ under the sovereignty of the one true God? The Bible says in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11, that the Lord rules over all. In the book of Psalm 24, the psalmist writes, The earth is the Lord and all it contains the world and all who dwell in it. Our God is sovereign over every human being. He is sovereign over every event in history. He is sovereign over the minute details of your life and my life. Don't ask me how He does it. He's God. He can do whatever He wants. 
He is the sovereign. He is the only autonomous person in the universe. And Psalm 47, 7 says, The Lord is the King of all the earth. Last week, we began to look at the way that the sovereignty of God is extended into all human institutions. And today, we're going to look at one of the worst humanly devised institutions ever conceived, and that being of slavery. Let's look at the text and consider what we learn from this text. Let me give you a general statement. It's really the sermon in a sentence. Submission to all earthly authorities is our calling in order that we might be like Christ. So let's pick this apart a little bit. First statement that surfaces from this passage is we are to submit to all earthly authorities. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And my translation has an alternate reading for the word unreasonable. That's too mild an interpretation of the word in the original language. It's the word perverse, even to those who are perverse. Now, God wrote this. I didn't write it. Let's think about the plight of the servant considered. These servants were slaves. And this is not the ordinary word that is used in the New Testament for slave. The ordinary word is doulos. This is a different word. It means house servant. There are two classes of the 60 million, count them, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire at the time that Peter wrote this letter. 60 million. One class, menial, field hands we might call them. Those who did manual labor. And then those household slaves or servants, that's the category that's directly addressed here, but it would be inclusive of all those who were slaves. The household slaves, some were doctors, some were teachers, some were actors. When we studied the book of Galatians, Paul borrowed an example from this household slave group, the pedagogos, the tutor who leads students to the place of study and makes sure that the student who is the child of his master gets there on time, does his work, and behaves in the process and also tutors him, as it were, if necessary, when it comes to his lessons. Well, the household servant. And some of these household servants had it better than those manual or menial servants, but make no mistake about it, whether you were a manual labor type of slave or you were a household slave, you were a piece of property owned by another human being. Let me read to you what Aristotle had to say, reflecting the mindset, although he lived long before this was written, it carried over for centuries within Greco-Roman thought. Listen to what Aristotle's philosophy said about the position of a slave. There can be no friendship nor justice toward inanimate things. Indeed, not even towards a horse or an ox, not yet towards a slave as a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool, just as a tool is an inanimate slave. 
That is wrong. That is sinful to even think of such a thing. But the reality was that this vast throng of people within the Greco-Roman Empire at this time found themselves in servitude, in slavery. There was a slight possibility that they could be set free. Seldom did it happen. But occasionally, because of the kindness of a master who allowed that particular slave to work side jobs and get a little money and begin to save, that person could buy his slavery. Someone would come along who showed a special interest and buy that slave and then free that slave. But that was the rare exception. So most of these people found themselves in a perpetual state of slavery. I don't know if you caught it when Scott was reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But listen to what the Scripture says in verse 20. Each man must remain in that calling in which he was called. Actually, is the word condition is the word that the New American Standard used, but it's actually the word calling. Each man must remain in that calling in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Stop worrying about it. But if you're able to become free, rather do it. Get free if you can. Don't be a slave all your life if you can help it. But meanwhile, don't be terribly burdened by it because the Lord's freed men are not the slaves of men. Now, the reality is, in a room this large, there are many types of enslavement represented. And what I mean by that, you feel like a prisoner of your body. You may feel like a prisoner of your job. You may feel like a prisoner in your home. You may feel like a prisoner. But if you're in Christ, you can rise above that imprisonment. Because Jesus sets you free. And your sense of well-being and my sense of well-being is independent of any external circumstance which we might have in our lives. But if we can get free according to the will of God, get free. That's what the Word of God is. But don't seek your sense of contentment in being set free from a place of difficulty. Let me say that again. Don't bank on your sense of contentment being related to your being set free from some external circumstances. If you're in Christ, you've been set free. And you need to realize the depth of that freedom. You can realize that in your relationship as you grow as a follower of Jesus. Galatians chapter 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither slave nor free. Do you have any idea how revolutionary that was? In light of what I've said, 60 million slaves who were just mere chattel, they were common property, they were viewed as non-beings, Can you imagine how revolutionary this was when Paul wrote this to the Galatians? In Christ there's neither slave nor free. Can you put yourself back in time and imagine that you came to a place of worship like this? Not like this. There were no buildings like this. But you gathered wherever the believers in your community gathered on a day like this, the Lord's Day. And you came and you were there. And there were men who were there, and women who were there, who were aristocratic. They were wealthy. They were independent. And then here you come, and you are treated as an equal there. Because there is neither slave nor free man in Christ. 
We have our own caste system in America. It takes different forms. But what we need to understand, in the body of Christ, there is no caste. We are all one in Jesus. We are all significant to the Lord. Every one of us is at the same place in terms of our relationship to the Lord. Because He is our sovereign. He is our King. We're to be submissive to all earthly authorities, even the bad authorities. Look again at the text. Verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle. Now, there were some good and gentle masters. Otherwise, this would not be here. Good and gentle. Thank God for good bosses, right? Thank God that in some of our lives... We have authorities placed over us who understand the importance of being this kind of leader. A good and gentle leader. But there were others who were anything but. We've already seen the word unreasonable as the one which is chosen by the New American Standard Bible. But it also carries with the idea of perversity. So sometimes we have this kind of leader. Bad leadership in our Homes, bad leadership in our workplace, bad leadership sometimes in the church, bad leadership in our government, bad leadership, bad leadership, bad leadership. But the Word of God says we're to be submissive to all the human authorities placed upon us. This is not a very common theme that you hear in the teaching of the Bible, and I wouldn't have picked it myself. But we're teaching through the book of First Peter, right? That's the beauty of going through all of God's Word. Let God speak to your heart today. Our own literature in our tradition is full of examples of bad leaders and those who were oppressed by them. Uncle Tom's cabin. Uncle Tom himself. I know the concept of Uncle Tom is a very negative concept within the African American community. But have you read Uncle Tom's cabin? I'm just going to go on record. I have never encountered a fictitious character in literature who was more like Jesus Christ than Tom. Never. Not that I'm that widely read. But I was moved deeply 20 plus years ago when I read this book. And I was touched deeply. And he had an awful taskmaster, Simon Legree. Awful. But he was one who was willing to submit himself to the Lord, not to this awful taskmaster, but to the Lord. What about Dickens' Christmas Carol? We know Scrooge, do we not? Ebenezer Scrooge? He didn't have a slave per se, but really he did have a slave, did slave didn't he? What was his name? Bob Cratchit, right? And he mistreated him terribly. But the reality is, God wants us to be people who are submissive even to those earthly authorities that we consider bad authorities in our lives today. The second thing, and this will take only a moment, that this text teaches, we are not only to submit to all earthly authorities, but to those in authority over us we are to give respect. Servants, verse 18, be submissive to your masters with how much respect? How much? All respect. And what helps us here in Colossians 3.24, another section in the Scripture which talks about the relationship that believing slaves are to have to their masters, 
in subservience. This is what the Word of God says. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. That takes the bitter sting out of having a boss who is anything but good and gentle in the way in which she or he treats you. It takes the sting out. It takes the sting out of parents who seem overbearing in the way in which they treat their children in the home. I'm not talking about abuse here. I'm just talking about overbearing. It takes the sting out when that student says, it is the Lord Christ I am serving. I can look past a husband who is not as loving as Jesus is. I can look past that husband. I'm to be submissive to my husband, I know. But I look past that to the Lord. It's the Lord Christ I'm serving. So we have to understand we're to do this with all respect. Now here's the third and final thing in the passage. And we will obviously spend most of our time considering this statement. Statement number one, we're to be submissive to all the authorities that are over us. Number two, we're to submit to those in authority over us with all respect. And finally, we are to submit to those in authority over us in order to find favor with God. Do you think it's important to find favor with God? It's ultimately important, isn't it? Well, let's see how this passage goes in verse 19. For this finds favor, the text says, and the word literally is grace, this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right... And suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. By the way, who put those authorities over you? Remember, He's sovereign. He's the one who has placed the authorities over you, many of whom are bad in their exercise of that authority. God is especially pleased when we suffer and endure mistreatment for doing what is right. This is why God called us. That's the truth. Look at verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, referring back to what has just been written in verses 19 and 20. What is the purpose of God? Here's what God's purpose is. We saw in 1 Peter 2, 9, look back there at 1 Peter 9. It's been a couple of weeks ago. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So why did God call us out of a life of spiritual death into spiritual life? So we can declare His excellencies. We can extol Him. We can preach the Gospel. We share this great Gospel message with those who have yet to hear it and believe it. That's why we're called. But also we're called, according to this passage of Scripture, to suffer for doing what's right. Now let's look at the next chapter. Verse 17, this is very interesting. First Peter 3, 17, It is better if God should will it that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Suffer? It's God's will for me to suffer 
Well, yes, it is in some cases for doing what's right. It's His will for you and me to do that. And we'll see why as we move through this passage. God has called us. Now, let's explore that idea a little more deeply. In Romans 8, 28, you know this verse. Most of you could quote it. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. He causes everything to work together for good. Then he goes on to explain what his purpose is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Why did he call me? Why did he call you out of darkness into his marvelous light? In order that you and I might become like Jesus Christ. That's exactly why he called us. And so let's explore this even more fully as we look again at verse 21. I'm going to begin at the start. I've already read it, but it's worth repeating. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you. Jesus had a life of suffering, didn't He? Yes, He did. In unbelievable suffering. Leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Now, I love this. There was a craze probably 20 years ago, WWJD. What does that stand for? What would Jesus do? I would see athletes, professional athletes, college athletes wearing those wristbands, WWJD. And the message was clear. I'm going to ask what Jesus would have me to do in certain situations like that. It comes from the book In His Steps. And it was an old book that has stood the test of time. We're to follow in his steps. He's our example. Now, this word example is a very fascinating word. We learn what words mean by seeing how they were used in this time frame outside the New Testament. And the word translated example was used, for instance, to describe a teacher who was teaching a student how to write properly. And what the teacher would do, and the teacher would be an expert in penmanship, the teacher would write all the letters of the alphabet in rather faint ink and then would give the assignment to the student or the students to copy over those letters, to learn how to properly write those letters. That's the idea. We're to be copycats of whom? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be men and women who are committed to copy Christ. Now, Jesus, fortunately for us, is not simply our example. He's more than that to us, isn't He? He is our life. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself for me. Christ lives in me. I'm not left simply to follow His example, but He lives in me. He gives me the power to follow His example. But I need to look at who He is. I learn when I look at the Word of God what kind of man He is. And I seek to copy Him. We are to follow His example by following in His steps. And the idea of following in His steps is the idea of blazing a trail, really. I'll never forget my favorite, I guess you'd call it fairy tale. When I was growing up, my mother and father had bought a, 
a set of books, Childcraft. Some of you have some vague recollection of that set of books. And Hansel and Gretel was my favorite story. For various reasons, the old witch got thrown in the fire at the end. I love stories that end happily, don't you? Yeah, it's awesome. But what I was really fascinated with was, in order to mark their trail, what did they do? They were traveling by night, and they marked their trail. What they do? They put breadcrumbs on the pathway. Remember that? But what happened? The birds came along and ate them. They had no trail. You know what the Lord has done? He has blazed a trail for us, and He has marked that trail. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. And the idea there, He will cut a pathway that is well-defined and that is not going to change, and you can follow it. And in following it, you will be following His example, because He has blazed the trail. The Bible says about Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. One of the translators translates it this way. He is the pioneer and a perfecter of our faith. Jesus has led the way. This is why Christ over and over again, when He calls people to follow Him, He simply gives that invitation. Follow Me. Simple. Follow Me. You don't have to learn everything there is to learn. Just follow Me. And you will learn By following me. You'll hear what I say. You'll do what I do. You'll enjoy a life that's full and meaningful because it's the life that you were created for to begin with. I am your sovereign and I will guide you. Christ is indeed to be our example, particularly in this matter of suffering. So let's look at the way in which Jesus suffered. If He is our example, we can look to Him, correct, and find how we are to live this life. First of all, his suffering was undeserved. Look at verse 22. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Can you imagine? Not one wrong thought. Not one wrong word. Not one wrong action or inaction. Perfection. When he stood before Pilate and Pilate handed him over to the Jewish people, as it were. He said, I find no fault in him. When Judas had a pang of great guilt, he takes the 30 pieces of silver for which he had betrayed the Lord. He goes back and he returns the silver in hopes that this dastardly deed which he had perpetrated could be reversed. He said, there was nothing in this man that is sinful. He is perfect. This is our Lord. Did He deserve to die for you and me? He didn't. Did He deserve to suffer at all for any reason whatsoever? No. He committed no sin. Nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And let's look at the next statement about the way He suffered. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. What does that word mean? When He was spoken wrongly about. He did not come back against people. Isn't that our nature? Somebody speaks badly of us, what do we want to do? We come right back at them, don't we? With another word to cut them down. And there's this war of words which follows. Jesus did not 
ever practice the manly art of self-defense. He rather, when he was called a deceiver, he kept his mouth shut. Now look back in preparation to the book of Isaiah 53. And in verse 7, twice it says, He did not open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. He did not defend himself. What is our natural response? When we are wronged, what do we typically do? We defend ourselves. It is so counterintuitive to fallen man to let God take up for her or for him. We feel compelled to take up for ourselves. That is not Christ-like. It's not. And we need to understand that. Christ didn't even take offense. That's interesting. Look back at our text here. While suffering, he uttered no threats. Wow. He did not take offense. Do you get offended easily? When I was first beginning to grow in the Lord, it's been over 40 years ago now, a little booklet was put in my hand. and It was entitled, What Made you cross. And the idea is, what makes you out of sorts? And the thesis of this little booklet was, the thing that makes me cross is my self-centeredness. I'm sensitive. In my oversensitivity to being spoken rudely to or mistreated is a reflection of the fact that I'm immature spiritually. I have not come to the place where Christ found Himself. But I can grow and become like that. Quit taking offense. You say, well, you don't know how I've been offended. No, I don't. But I've been offended. Just like you've been offended. Many, many times I've had a long time to live to be offended. I've been offended a lot. And Ecclesiastes, just listen to this. Ecclesiastes 7, 21 and 22. Also, do not take seriously all words which are spoken, so that you will not hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. Have you cursed other people? Is there anybody here who's never talked about another person behind that person's back? Just let me see a hand, show of hands. <laughs> We've all done it, haven't we? It's wrong. And we should avoid it. However, when we are offended, what we need to remember is we also have done such things and it may be considered properly as payback. For whatsoever a man sows, that also he shall reap. We're just reaping what we've sown. You want to kind of cut that part of it down? Well, start being a person who doesn't curse people either to their faces or behind their back. You may recall that David was run out on a rail by the forces who had sided with his son Absalom, who was carrying out a coup, dethroning his father. And as he was walking out of Jerusalem, headed eastward out of Jerusalem, he was in terrible sadness and sorrow. And a man by the name of Shimei began to curse him. And then David's right-hand man, Abishai, said, Lord, you want me to get that guy's head? And do you remember what David said? David say, says, uh, let him curse me. 
Maybe the Lord sent him to curse me because I've been at fault. So we need to have this attitude. Don't take offense, but do what Jesus did. Look what he goes on to say here in the last part of 23. But Jesus kept trusting himself to him who judges righteously. So how do we do this? This is unbelievable, isn't it? I thought of a passage that I just read in my map journal in 2 Timothy chapter 1. It says, Paul writes, he said, Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in the preaching of the gospel by the power of God. Do you know what the power of God... Join with me, not in the preaching of the gospel, excuse me. Join with me in suffering by the power of God. He's a prisoner. He's suffering. Do you know how many times Paul ended up in prison? No telling. He wrote a lot of his stuff that we benefit from. It's God's Word from a prison cell. But he says, join me in suffering. How? How do we suffer? By the power of God, he goes on to say, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. God is intent upon my being holy. Why? Because if I'm set apart from His use, for His use, and the only way I get there, ultimately, is to be like Christ. And being like Christ who learned obedience through what He suffered. I'm going to suffer. You're going to suffer. We don't have to go look for someone to beat us up or do anything like that. But we will experience trouble in our lives. That's what the Bible says here again in 2 Peter 3.12, Timothy rather 3.12, says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. He entrusted himself to the one who judges righteously. Do you think Jesus believed in the sovereignty of his Father in heaven? Do you believe that? The Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, God, the Father, is head over Jesus, the Son. Now, Jesus is God, fully God, on the par with God the Father. But in the counsel of God within the Trinity, that was the role which Jesus played and still plays. God the Father is His sovereign. And then here's how He suffered. We know how He suffered. When we think of the suffering of Jesus, this is what we typically think of. And this is a beautiful statement of the ultimate act of suffering on Jesus' part. In verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. He bore our sins upon the cross. He redeemed us. He bought us out of sin by sacrificing Himself. He bore the curse of our sin upon Himself. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And also, He bore the consequences. It was awful what Jesus had to go through in order to secure our salvation. Oh, the wonderful cross. Did you think about the words we were singing earlier? The wonderful cross. The incredible sacrifice beyond our ability to even conceive of it, much less explain it. But that is what we who know Jesus have. We have redemption from slavery to sin as a result of what Christ did for us by dying on the cross. And not only that, we have release from sin so that we, the text says in 24, might die to sin 
and live to righteousness. This is freedom. It's for freedom, as I mentioned earlier, that we have been set free. And the freedom is to be found in what Christ has done for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not going to have to worry about being punished for our sin. Why? Jesus was punished for our sin on the cross. In addition to that, we don't have to sin anymore. I like that. I can only imagine how much I would have sinned. I've sinned way too much since I came to Christ. But I can only imagine how much sin I would have committed had I not been released from the power of sin. The Bible says we are no longer under the power of sin. We don't have to sin. When I sin, I do it knowingly and willingly. I don't have to anymore, though. And nor do you if you're in Christ. And let's look again at the text. We can live to righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. The Bible says in the book of Romans 13, put on the Lord Jesus Christ like we put on a garment. And among the characteristics of that piece of clothing we know as Jesus Christ that we're to put on is that He, according to 1 Corinthians 1.30, is our righteousness. He's our righteousness. Thank God for that. The kind of God that He is for us. And then it says, by his wounds we were healed. Many people have taken this to say, well, this means as a result of what Christ has done, all our sicknesses were paid for, healed in the atonement. Well, I'm not going to comment on that, but that's not what is meant here, clearly, because there's nothing to do with sickness that's referred to here, at least physical sickness. It has to do with spiritual sickness, right? It's about sin. That's what he's talking about here. And we were healed from all of our sin by what Christ has done in Christ. And then the last thing here, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This is lovely, isn't it? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But God has laid on Jesus how much of our sin? The iniquity of all of our sin. All of our sin was placed upon Jesus who has given us a place of ultimate safety. In my mind's eye, I can see a little lamb frolicking in a meadow. And the little lamb recognizes its shepherd and runs to the shepherd. There's a relationship there. And sometimes the little lamb gets too frisky and too adventurous and runs off and gets in trouble. And at the end of the day, when the shepherd is looking for all the sheep, there are 100 in his flock. He counts them 99. He thinks, maybe I miscounted. He goes again. He counts it a second time. 99. Just for good measure, I'm going to count it three times. He counts it again, still 99. He says, I've got to leave these 99 behind. I'm going after that little lamb. And he goes and finds it. And as Jesus talked about that in Luke 15. When he finds that one lost sheep, he rejoices. He comes back to his neighborhood and he throws a party. Everybody rejoices because he's found the sheep that was lost. The sheep had wandered away. Are you in that category today? Are you a sheep who has wandered away from the Lord? Wandered away in what you believe? Wandered away in the way you behave, 
Have you wandered away? Well, this good shepherd lay down his life for you. And he is not only the shepherd, but he's the guardian of you. The word guardian is the word episkopos, for the word from which the name episcopal comes, or episcopalian. It's the word which is translated overseer. It's used to describe elders or overseers of the church. This is our chief elder. Jesus is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd of the sheep. And he is calling us home to himself today. He is reaching out and he is finding us today. Would you bow your head? If you are here today and you sense that the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you to come back to Him, then please don't delay. He's not going to scold you. He's not going to beat you. He died for you. He suffered for you. And He suffered for all of us so that we might be able to have the kind of ministry He had, a redemptive ministry of sharing the good news with other people of how Jesus loves us. Jesus loves you. And He died for you to show it. And He wants to give you a place of security and safety. Won't you come to Him today? Father, we pray that You would move in the hearts of people here present today who do not know You, that they would want to come to You. As You have said, Lord Jesus, come to Me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and You will find rest for your souls. We pray, Lord, that that would be the experience of men and women here today. Thank You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.